Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, everyone. Welcome to a special episode of The History of Byzantium. It's an interview with two expert guests about the desperate situation in southeast Turkey and northern Syria. Since our last update, the death toll has exceeded 45,000 people, with that number set to rise. There have been over 11,000 aftershocks following the original earthquakes on the 6th of February. And about 2 million people in Turkey alone are being evacuated from the area. If you'd like to donate to the rescue effort, check out the links in the description of this episode or visit thehistoryofbyzantium.com. The city which may have been worst hit by this disaster is Antakya, or Antioch, as it was once known. So in today's episode, I talk to two historians who know the city well. We're going to have an in-person report on what the situation is like on the ground, as well as talk about the past and Antioch's intimate relationship with earthquakes. We will also have one eye on the future, what has survived, and what may happen next. Our two guests are Andrea Di Giorgi and Catherine Pangonis. Andrea Di Giorgi is a professor of classical studies at Florida State University, He specialises in Roman urbanism and visual culture and has written many books and articles on the subject. He co-authored the fantastic book Antioch, A History, which I thoroughly recommend. Dr. DiGiorgi has also directed excavations and surveys in Turkey, Syria, Georgia, Jordan and the UAE. Since 2013, he has co-directed the COSA excavations in Italy, and since 2021, the coastal Caesarea archaeological project in Israel. Currently, he's studying the 1930s Antioch and Daphne collections at the Princeton University Art Museum. Catherine Pangonis is a historian and author of the book Queens of Jerusalem, who I interviewed back in episode 238 of the podcast. Her second book, to be published this summer, is called Twilight Cities, Lost Capitals of the Mediterranean. In it, she explores famous cities from antiquity, like Tyre, Carthage and Ravenna, cities who once ruled whole empires and were littered with magnificent buildings, which have been somewhat forgotten. One of the cities she covers is Antioch. She also hosts the podcast Women Who Dared to Write. 
For any of you who need a reminder, Antioch was for long periods the second city of the Eastern Roman Empire. Founded by Seleucus, one of Alexander the Great's generals, it was rebuilt multiple times over the centuries because it was regularly damaged by earthquakes. It sits near a couple of major fault lines in the Earth's surface. There was a massive quake in 115 AD when the Emperor Trajan was in the city, and again in 526 AD, just before Justinian took over from his uncle Justin. On this podcast, we've spent a lot of time in the city. Beyond just the regular narrative, we followed John Chrysostom, who climbed the slopes of Mount Silpius and Mount Staurin as part of his ascetic training, before descending to become the city's bishop. And then we lingered again during the epic Crusader siege, where Bohemond walked the walls looking for an Armenian captain he could bribe to get the Latins into the city. The remaining ruins of those walls are something I am very keen to see one day, and it sounds like pieces of them have, amazingly, survived this quake. Two more notes before we begin. You'll hear Catherine describe the sound of an earthquake, and the comparison is made to the writings of Malalas, that is, John Malalas, who wrote during Justinian's reign and witnessed the quake of 526. We also talk about the Antakya Graben, which is an elongated block of the Earth's crust which lies between two faults, and which the city of Antakya sits on. I began the interview by asking Catherine about her recent visit to Antakya. She went to see friends there a short while after the earthquake struck. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much, Robin. Um, and thank you for drawing attention to this disaster, because it's important that as many people know about what's going on and yeah, are aware of the situation as possible. Um, I first went to Antakya, Antioch, about five years ago when I was researching my first book and which was about the Crusades and obviously Antioch plays a major role in that and so this region has been very important to me for a long time and then more recently I've been going specifically to research the the long history of Antioch um, and when this earthquake hit I was completely devastated well I mean obviously for the whole region I actually live in Beirut and the earthquake the first one was so strong that we felt it all the way down in Lebanon. And, and, you know, my shower rail fell down, my dogs were barking. It was very frightening, even in Beirut. So you can imagine what it was like closer to the epicenter and in, in all these cities. And when news first started breaking about the earthquake, obviously, you know, I was devastated for Gaziantep and Urfa and these other places. But part of me was like, oh, at least it's not so bad in Antakya, where my friends are. Um, I can't reach them by phone, but it's probably just because I know the Turkish government has told everyone to turn their phones off in the region, not to impact the rescue effort and such. And then what gradually became clear over the days that followed was that Antioch was in fact, and Antakya was in fact the worst affected city of them all. Um, and the reason I had at first thought that it wasn't so badly affected was because, you know, aid just didn't get there. It wasn't the city that aid and journalists descended on. It didn't get the same media coverage in the first days as Gaziantep, as Marash, as the other, the other cities that were impacted. Um, and yeah, it gradually became apparent that Antioch had just been flattened by this earthquake. Sorry, and I keep saying Antioch, but of course I mean Antakya, the modern, the modern city, uh, had been completely devastated by this. And aid did not, you know, in many cases, aid did not get there in time and on the scale that was required to rescue people. 
Um, and it was devastating. It really, it really was. You know, Antakya as a modern city is multicultural. It's beautiful. It's, I mean, it's been a, it's an Alawite center, so that's sort of a, a Muslim minority group. But it also had this ancient Jewish community that's been there since the city's foundation, and also some very strong Christian communities, including, you know, of course, the Orthodox Church, which is very established, very well known, but also many pockets of sort of you know, new non-denominational Christian groups have been drawn to the city because of the Christian heritage. So, and people there were just so friendly and so kind to me on every occasion. I, I made, you know, I was specifically trying to meet people from all the different communities and the friends I made there, the, the kindness I encountered at every turn was just, you know, it was, it was astounding. It was sort of this cross between Mediterranean hospitality and sort of Arabic warmth and, you know, obviously Turkish culture. It's just a fantastic place. And so when I started seeing these images of the city collapsed, it, it really broke my heart. And I was commissioned by the Times and some other papers, including BBC History and some other outlets to write about the damage to cultural heritage. And I didn't go to Antakya in the immediate aftermath of the earthquakes because I'm not, I mean, obviously coverage is important, but, you know, I wasn't doing breaking news and it wasn't important for me there to, to be there instantly. And I certainly didn't want to be getting in the way of any rescue efforts or, um, you know, taking any beds or tents or anything from people who needed them. So I waited a few weeks and I went on the 18th of February, thinking that that was, you know, a better time to go to assess the damage. Um, and I did, and I'll talk more about the damage later, but yeah, as Robin said, there were many aftershocks and the worst was while I was there. Um, and it, I think it measured 6.4. So that's a major earthquake once again. And, you know, it was the most, it was really the most terrifying and adrenaline inducing moment of my life. Um, we just drove, I was in the car, we just, we were in a gas station and this, this earthquake started and it take, you know, the time slows down. And I just shouted the person I was with, drive, drive, drive. And we drove out to the gas station and then the part of the ceiling of the gas station collapsed. So, and the sound I will never forget, you know, it's like the earth is roaring. The sound, it's it's like thunder, but coming from beneath you and engulfing you. And obviously there's panic around you and there's the physical movement of it. And it's it's terrifying. So what people in that region have gone through is, is horrific because it destroys buildings. Um, and the situation in Antakya is, you know, the modern city is unrecognisable. You know, hammams that I wrote about are just not there. They've been there since since Mamluk and Ottoman times. They're gone. Buildings have collapsed onto them. You know, thousands and thousands of people have died. Streets are completely flattened. Um, you don't you don't recognise places that you know like the back of your hand now. It's 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 awful. Um, and yeah, you know, I was walking past one one building and there was this woman sitting by herself because it's like a ghost town. The whole city has evacuated except for aid workers. And along the river, there are some refugee tents, you know, and there was one woman sitting by a destroyed house. And I asked her if she was OK. And she was like, well, this is my mother's house. Um, I've come here to spend time with her. And then she showed me a photo of her mother and she was just sitting there weeping and they still hadn't managed to recover her mother's body. So this the city is devastated by this and the scale of it, it's, you know, images you see in the media just don't, don't communicate the scale of the, the devastation and the destruction in the city um, to both cultural heritage and to people's lives and modern homes. Um, and the really tragic thing in Antakya is you see buildings that have clearly been built to earthquake proof regulations that are still standing pretty much intact 
and you see like one or two buildings like this amid seas of destruction, you realize that a lot of these deaths are preventable. And anyway, so I've just said quite a lot, but it really is incredibly moving and impactful um, what has happened to this city and across the region. You know, Antakya is just one of many. Um, yeah, just awful. And then what's worse even is that some people that survived the first earthquakes and their homes survived the first earthquakes didn't survive the ones that I was there for. So, you know, I visited a friend in Samandag, which is the ancient port of St. Simeon on the coast. And she and her family were living in tents, thank God, because they, although their house was okay, they were worried about aftershocks. So they were sleeping outside. And, you know, two weeks after the initial quakes, when that new one hit, their house was then destroyed in that one. So there are these continuous waves of fear and destruction and people are stranded and, you know, earthquake insurance is not paying out for them, you know, because how, what insurance company can pay for that scale, you know, so people are really left with nothing now. And it's, it's, it's just tragic across the board. Anyway, thank you. No, it's terrific. I, I you know, I just today, I watched some footage of an orphanage, you know, with, with babies whose parents have not been found. And, you know, as the father of a four month old, it just kicks you right in the gut um, to see that. Um, what, what was, what was the, the mood's the wrong word. What, what were your friends and contacts saying they were going to do next? Cause obviously this is why we want people to send aid, but what, what can they do in their situation? Are they waiting for more help to arrive or are they able to get on with their lives in any, any meaningful way? I mean, no one can get on with their lives in any meaningful way um, at all because everything is gone. <laughs> like, it's imagine put yourself in that position as you you have, like, um, for your listeners as well. Like, what happens if your house, your money, you know, your house, your possessions, your office where you go, your office where you go to work is gone. The business you've invested in is gone. Your house is gone. Your friends and neighbors, you can't reach them. They're scattered across. You're grieving friends like so many so many people acquaintances you know every, everything has stopped the world has stopped turning for these people I mean it's different in each case I mean so like I said I went to see my friend Gamza who lives in St Simeon and she'd been a translator for me on some of my my earlier trips to Ant Antakya and you know she I was amazed by her and her family like I said they'd moved into tents and, you know, they never asked for anything. I tried, I offered to give them money and of course they wouldn't hear of it. And actually, you know, more than that, not only were they not going to accept anything from me, they were still, because they're just such warm people in this region, they were still trying to press gifts on me to take away with me. Like orange, you know, they don't have much to give at this point, but oranges from the tree, like, you know, every, you know, whatever they can give, they want to. Um, so they were living in tents and many people are people with family in other parts of Turkey have, have evacuated and gone to stay with family, but they, they're, they're refugees, you know, um, they really are. And refugees from a disaster, not from war, but the, the effects, you know, it's, they're, it's, it's, it's the same, if not worse. Um, but so many people in Antakya now are just destitute, hopeless and homeless, um, you know, I want, we'll, we'll talk about this more, but, you know, one of, I visited one of the cultural sites, which is the Cave Church of St. Peter, which we'll, we'll certainly talk more about. And, you know, I was, you know, there, there were there were soldiers there um, and police, you know, trying to stop people go in. And I, you know, I really begged and pleaded my case and I was allowed in. Um, and one of the guards, I took his number so I could ask him about, ask him more questions if there was more damage in the future. 
and you know he just wrote to me after that that earthquake that happened while I was there and was just like you know he was like I've lost everything I've lost the you know I put all my money into a business I now have nothing um and he just doesn't know what to do and the, the people are so traumatized by this that you know I think it's just about getting up and putting one foot in front of the other um and in some places but you know people are moving into tents and they are and they're worried that they're going to be in those tents for years you mm. know they're not the tents aren't necessarily a temporary solution they can't they can't rehouse people on this scale it's hundreds of thousands have been displaced all across the region they can't it's not like a flood in one city they can't go down the road to the next city and book up the travel lodges you know they're it's yeah it's the it's the scale and so people are terrified about the future and they don't know no one knows what's coming and some of them are worried that their their lives are over now um yeah it's just I mean, and but i you know some people i spoke to i mentioned these non-denominational christian groups you know groups are coming together and, and helping each other in some places but and a lot of people have emigrated away from the city for good now you know they will never go back but some people have already told me that they're, they're making plans to return and to try and rebuild. Um, but those are only the people with means and with sort of the, the emotional, physical strength to do that. I mean, imagine, if, imagine being an elderly person displaced in this kind of thing. You don't have the energy to go back and rebuild. Mm. And a lot of people won't have the money. So, yeah, it's, it really yeah. is a disaster. Thank you for sharing that. Um, we, I think we'll talk more about what listeners can do to help and what the future might hold. But why don't we step away for a moment and talk about um, the history of this region. Um, so I turn to Andrea, um, who is one of the leading experts on Antioch. But um, Andrea, could you tell the listeners why this has happened? Where are the fault lines in the earth um, that are causing this? And, and then take us through a little bit of the history of, of Antioch's relationship with earthquakes. Yeah. Thank you, Robin. And thank you, Catherine, for this extraordinary report. As I was listening to you, I could not help but, but think of of certain, of certain expressions that makes me expressions that make me think of, of the words of Severus of Antioch, Evagrius, and Malalas, who, who described the, the the roar, the thundering sound beneath them, just like as you did, Catherine. Um, so that was something that I, that I wanted to um, to to first and foremost to sort of um, to share with you and with the with the audience. As for the actual causes, well, causality here sort of like um, is pretty pretty well understood. Uh, the, this this uh this earthquake is essentially um predicated on the uh the geology of the region and at least in the configuration the geological configuration of the so-called Antakya Graben uh that is a uh a northeastern uh trend in a topographic depression that is approximately some 52 kilometers in length and and uh, it varies between five and nine kilometers in width. Um, it, it formed some time around the, the late Pliocene, so we're talking about 3.6 to 2.6 million um, years ago. And, um, and in, in a way, sort of, it follows the path of the 
of the Dead Sea fault line. That is a path in northeast to southwest. Um, and the this Antakya Graben also is part of the so-called Cyprus Antakya Fault, which uh, which is a, in essence a uh, uh, an onshore continuation of the of the Cyprus Arc, a, a sinistral transitional fault resulting from from the collision of the African annual region plates. So, um, and the graben in strictly strictly geological terms consists of a, a thick conglomerate of of Pliocene uh, uh, fluvial terraces that um, that dominate sort of the uh, the western the western flank. Um, so this is a, the general the general picture, but we have to remember though that that within the city of Antakya itself lies yet another minor fault, a, a ten kilometer fault that is even visible in spots within the old city, and so the, the the grotto of the of the Church of Saint Peter on the flank on the, on the flank of of Mount Silpius is dug directly into the fault surface. So to make a long story short, the, the devastating effects of earthquakes in the city of, of Antakya or Antioch, we call it what you will, can logically uh, be attributed to the, to the presence of this surface ruptured fault directly within the city limits in keeping with this general context of instability. So we, you have all kinds of sort of like forces here that are um, basically, um, uh, working against against the city, and uh, it's been noted by by scholars previously that earth, earthquakes in the region with a magnitude of of seven or more appear to be associated with a an average lateral offset movement of two between two and three meters, which of course imagine sort of like a movement of that magnitude causes like you know this ripple effect, this dominant effect of sort of like a wholesale collapse and the destruction of architecture. So uh, in essence, sort of this is what we are looking at, uh, a, a picture of, of great instability and, and, and forces that indeed conspire against, against the city. But forces that sort of basically sort of like represent the, the endemic hills of a city that that from the from the from the get go had to 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 wrestle its uh, its survival against the uh, yes the forces of nature. Um, the earthquakes are attested as early as the second century BC. There's a um, there's a sequence um, in the uh, in the first century AD during the days of the Julio Claudians. Of course, Guido um, Boni and her manual is the go to reference when it comes down to earthquakes. Uh, in this region, we have a catalog of of, of earthquakes, and uh, we have the voices of the the chronicles and the uh, and and the historians who reported uh, on on these events. Um, so, what what uh, what appears to be, however, so when you put all of these events together, it is you get a, a long string of of downturns, events. Uh, and tremors and earthquakes that that indeed sort of brought havoc into into the city. The the one earthquake, however, sort of that um, that uh, perhaps sort of resonates the most in the textual record and in the archaeological record as well. I have to say, 
is that of uh, 115 AD, uh, a, um, an earthquake that was its renown to the words of Cassius Dio, who reported uh, vividly on the events. He has some some good sources. He has some good good intelligence. And it's the the one the one earthquake that struck the city as the Emperor Trajan was in town, and Emperor Trajan himself uh, had to literally like jump through the window and make it um, to safety inside the hippodrome, the hippodrome that we tentatively uh, locate on the island of the of the city, an island that of course is no more. And and that is. Anecdotes aside, I mean, the truth of the matter is that this was a devastating event, devastating event that's also corroborated by the archaeological record, um, the 1930s excavations of the city. No matter how patchy and kind of sort of haphazard they were, they nevertheless identified areas where, especially like the so-called street digs, that these were like... Uh, soundings that were designed to to test the uh, the presence of the uh, colonnaded street at the Cardo, and it is pretty apparent that a couple of these test trenches uh, brought to light uh, pretty pretty uh, evident layers of accumulation on top of the Hellenistic street, thus sort of like informing this idea of sort of reconstruction debris that was used to basically create sort of like in a base for the for the colon for the colonnade street uh, as repaired by by Trajan. Um, the evidence is tenuous but is very, very, very telling. Um, but above and beyond repairs and sort of reconstruction, which is prety much sort of the uh, uh, a trope in Antioch. I mean, you know, not a day will pass will pass in Antioch that uh, you wouldn't hear sort of like you know the rasping noise of saws and sort of the pounding of hammers and um, sort of like you know the hauling of stone. I mean, that's basically a, a normal day in the city in the city of Antioch. But what really sort of this um, uh, this uh, reconstruction project under Trajan ushers in is, I think, the concept of a, a city that that again is on our knees and uh, is aghast with the uh, with the drama and you know coming trying to come to terms with it, but nevertheless, it sort of like you know gets gets up again and sort of like rebuilds and. The earthquake of of AD uh, one hundred and fifteen is very much sort of like you know in my opinion sort of the uh, the watershed in the sense that it very much introduced this idea of like the city that goes back to life, the city that that rebuilds, but also uh, the city that reorients its forces, its uh, its way of perceiving space, the way that space is used, traversed, and uh, and experienced by its constituency. And um, it is, I think it, it is uh, apt to say that, that Trajan introduced a, a new idea of Antioch. And in so doing, he actually created a, a precedent. He's sort of like a, a, a founder, is yet another sort of like, you know, um, um, emperor who sort of like, you know, basically, uh, create a create a uh, a new logic for the city, and this is a concept that, that time and again is going to become critical. And when we think about 
equally devastating uh, earthquakes that are going to um, um, to shatter the city. I'm thinking of 458 and not least the 526 under 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 Justin and 528 sort of under Justinian when when basically all these various events is sort of like you know led to the construction and the realization of a new Antioch and that becomes particularly visible with like the uh, the events of 528 when Justinian really uh, rebuilds Antioch from scratch. Thanks, um, Andrea. I had a question. Um, based, well, I really hope that what you've said about Antioch having this this trend of being a city that is is reborn and is rebuilt. I sincerely hope that that trend continues and that modern Antakya is able to come back. There was one question I wanted to ask you because you told me something I didn't know that really struck me, which was that the the cave church, the Grotto of St. Peter, is built into the actual fault line that runs through Antakya. And what was really strange for me was when I was in Antakya, the only site in the whole city that was completely untouched by the earthquake, that didn't have, you know, a, a pebble out of place, it seems, was the cave church of St. Peter. You know, the, the crusader facade is intact. The arches inside are fine. The altar looks clean. There isn't, There doesn't even seem to be dust inside. Everything is as it exactly as I left it. Is that to do with being built in the fault line? Like, does being built on that patch sort of put at the eye of the storm? I mean, how does that work, oh. do you think? That is that is a that is a great point. I remember you sort of like you know telling me uh, about about the grotto. Um, I think I think that 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 in I I don't know I mean, at least like well in full disclosure, uh, Catherine was kind enough to uh, to share some 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 images of the city and and even the the Iron Gate, this very conspicuous feature that 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 uh, goes back to the. Uh, to the days of Justinian, even though it is a, a palimpsest of previous previous uh, building programs, there seems to be sort of a, a a good deal of preservation, or at least uh, feature monumental features that have on Mount Silpius and Mount Storin that that seemingly are have not been affected by the tremors. I mean that that seems to be sort of the my understanding. So I I think that. The, the fact that the, the, the church is in is in in good good state i mean it actually sort of like amazes me and you know makes me really wonder sort of like how it's sort of like you know these forces and sort of like you know this offset of of forces are sort of like is going to um impact the uh the buildings themselves um so i don't really have an answer to that i mean i i i don't think that i can yeah it's just much incredible <laughs> Andrea, was the was the earthquake under Justinian the last time the city was kind of flattened like this? Well, on that scale, well, no, it was not. Well, I mean, we we have this sort of another another event in five eighty seven. Uh, there's one in uh, in seven in seven one three. Um, eight five nine. Then we have one in the eleventh century. Um, it's pretty cyclical. I mean, of course, it's sort of the uh, the obvious impact and the numbers, the 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 casualties, and sort of the uh, the houses that were 
they were flattened by by this. These are numbers that, of course, are a matter of dispute in the textual sources, especially sort of the, you know, this, the this textual sources of the sixth century AD are so imbued with this sense of sort of like you know sensationalism, and but also sort of there is that element of like you know guilt and sort of like you know and and boy we deserve this. I mean we have wronged the the, the one and only God, and sort of like you know this is a a city that that. That needs to be, in a way, sort of like you know, punished for for all of its for all of its sins. Um, so it's hard to to sort of like you know to fully get a uh, a sense of scale. It has been, however, however, con- convincingly argued that that the one of Justinian is was somewhere like in a seven point zero sort of range in terms of magnitude. So I think that it is a, a good comparison with the um, with the events. Uh, that just struck uh, Antakya a um, few weeks ago. Um, so, um, to make a long story short, we have a uh, we have a pattern of a it seems to me of a uh, of a uh, earthquake per century, but um, earthquakes that are indeed of extraordinary uh, vehemence and. Um, I'm also sort of like you know going back to 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 my list that I have, which is again sort of uh, uh, grounded in the work of of Guido Boni, and it seems as though there's there's a um, well there's there seems to be a gap between 1408 and 1822, so a good 400 years with no apparent activity, uh, but still we have sort of like you know, especially like you know when you think about the sixth century, there's a uh, uh, there's uh, there's definitely sort of a uh, a long sequence of of quakes and uh, some of some may be considered aftershocks or or intimately related to the uh, to the to the one great event of 526. But again, by and large, you look at sort of like you know this this pattern uh, and you see how sort of you know. There's a, a repetition, and and um, and and the, the region, as I said previously, sort of giving you a, a sense of the uh, the geology, is simply susceptible uh, to to this to this type of of telluric events, and uh, they're not going to go away. Mm. Unfortunately, I mean, this is why your the work you co-authored, Antioch History, is such an amazing work of scholarship because. So many of these buildings have been knocked down, and you know there is no, there's nothing to look at above ground, kind of thing. No. <laughs> um, well, I mean, of course, sort of the, the the one the one issue with with Antioch, Antioch is also that I mean, uh, on the one hand, you have sort of the the geology that is clearly uh, unique and and uh, and liable to sort of to this kind of to this kind of uh, of of scenarios, but there's also a uh, an issue with you know with with flooding, uh, flooding from Mount Silpius, Mount Starin, and um, and uh, the Orontes being also a, a very very capricious uh, type of type of river. Um, I think that that's sort of like you know it, it's it's kind of like an anecdotal, uh, but but the fact that um, there's this there's this myth that, that the um, uh, the, the advisors of Seleucus Nicator should, like you know, had pointed out that the uh, the position of Antioch 
was was not ideal was far from ideal as a matter of fact and there were all kinds of sort of flags like you know being so close to the mountains and sort of like you know sort of you know, winter streams and the runoff and all that potentially harming the city uh but Seleucus of course had to to follow sort of the uh the whims of the gods and they had to sort of like you know continue with this plan despite <laughs> the recommendations and and there you go, you unlucky Antioch, as you know, as the Sibylline um, uh, text reads. Uh, there you go. I mean, once again, we're dealing with a uh, with a, um, uh, a scenario that reminds us of how frail the uh, the setting of this remarkable place is, and sort of like how this community once again has to has to vie against the uh, the forces of nature that are not being kind um, to her. Yeah. I mean, obviously, our, our primary concern is with the people, but yes, it is worth asking whether any historic buildings or monuments have survived. Catherine, do you know what which historic buildings have made it through this or, or what kind of damage has been done? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, a lot's been destroyed. I mean, and as, as you and Andre and, and I have said um, you know, that that Antioch's been destroyed so many times and rebuilt so many times. So many historic that you know there were there weren't many really historic structures standing um, before these earthquakes hit. But there are parts. So, and as Andrea has has mentioned, and based you know, and what I've seen is that the sites on the mountains surrounding seem to be okay like the best preserved historic site is the cave church of st peter which is this it's it's a really cool it's a really cool building it's a really cool place if you can call it a building because it is a cave and it's slightly unclear its origins because you know popular legend in the city and the tourist boards have it that this is the church that st peter preached in when he came to antioch because in the early days of Christianity, Christianity was secretive, it was furtive, it wasn't accepted by the Romans and Christians were persecuted. So, and this much is, tr is certainly true. And so they would often meet in caves to have mass and to preach and to converse and to talk to each other and carry out sacred rituals, etc., and so on. Um, and so the story goes that this is the church, this is the very first church that St. Peter preached in Antioch. You know, we don't have evidence to say that, but we do know that it's a very old Christian site of worship. You know, we have embellishments from the Byzantine period, these mosaics on the floor. It was certainly enlarged and improved under the Crusaders, the facade and the arches. And, you know, this, and, you know, we have mentions in Chronicles going back hundreds of years associating it with, I think, St. John as well as St. Peter. So in any case, it's certainly an old and important shrine. That is completely fine. Like I was, it was the first place I visited because it's sort of on the outskirts of the city and the roads around it aren't blocked because there aren't residential buildings there that fall into the city. And, you know, I I wept with sort of relief and joy and sort of just disbelief when I, I saw that it was completely fine. Likewise, I hiked to the Iron Gate, which is just, which is not too far from this church, and but is again in this ravine in the mountains. It's this amazing, amazing building. It's the last part of the walls, I think, that survives from Justinian's time. It's this monumental gate that straddles what is now a dry riverbed, but used to have their aunties going below it. And William of Tyre, the Crusader Chronicler, which your, your listeners will, I'm sure, will be big fans of, you know, describes it in great detail. And his descriptions still stand true. You can identify this from his descriptions, if nothing else. Um, that 
that gate is still there. You know, it looks like there's some structural damage to the base. It may need some help, um, but it was largely okay. Um, and again, walls and arches, the, just the remains, the vestiges of these Byzantine walls do seem to still be there around the city. And the medieval citadel, you know, it looks like there's been some damage, but it was pretty damaged before anyway. You know, there's been no restoration efforts there anyway. So those things look broadly unchanged, some loose rocks, some damage, you know. Um, but the sites within the city are destroyed. I mean, one of the most important mosques in Antioch is the Habibi Necha Mosque. Um, it's where the remains of Habib the Carpenter are kept. He's a he's an Islamic martyr, um, like you know, a saint who was meant to be a friend, a follower of Jesus, who preached who preached Jesus's word because Jesus is venerated, you know, well not venerated, but Jesus is respected as a prophet in Islam as well as Christianity. Um, and so, this man who defended Jesus's teachings was was stoned to death in, Ant in ancient Antioch and his remains are were, are, are you know ordered to be in this mosque it's a very important mosque and it that was destroyed in the 19th century earthquake that Andrea mentioned as well and has been rebuilt and it has been destroyed again now the minaret is gone most of the dome has fallen in it's, it's a pile of rubble already um, likewise the Greek Orthodox Church old historic that's been completely destroyed I mean I climbed up it um, I was looking for it and you climb up this mountain of rubble that must be three stories high and then you can see the remains of the church below. Um, and then, you know, some of the other really beautiful historic buildings are the hammams built under the Mamluks and the Ottomans and they're destroyed, you know, um, buildings have collapsed onto Yeni Hammam, Sindhi Hammam, it's, yeah, it's, it's destroyed. It looks like it's less destroyed than Yeni, but still, like, the walls are gone, part of the dome still stands, so, so much is, so much has been destroyed. Um, but what was left of Byzantine structures around the city does still seem to be there. So that was that was a pleasant surprise for me because I wasn't expecting it. But you know, as Andrea has pointed out, there have been many earthquakes. So if they're in, if they're situated in such a position and built in such a way that they've survived all those earthquakes, Andrea just talked us through. And yeah, maybe maybe they'll be they'll survive. They've that's why they survived this one, and maybe they'll continue to do so. And of course, another really important site in terms of culture in Antakya is the Hatay Archaeological Museum, which is one of you know the most extensive collections of mosaics in the world and also has these other incredible objects in the collection. And again, remarkably, sort of in testament to the fact that the Turkish government can build earthquake-proof buildings when it wants At least after the first two earthquakes, was largely intact. I mean, looking at it from the outside, you wouldn't think anything had happened. So, you know, that gives hope that the collections inside are still, you know, in good condition and, you know, future generations will still be able to appreciate the heritage that it contains. Yeah, because as I understand, it has some of the most amazing Roman mosaics um, that survive. Um, Andrea, I mean, can you talk about some of the things in that museum and perhaps other museums around the area that we really hope have have survived and, and why this area produces so much um, in the way of amazing artifacts. Yeah, where to begin? Uh, the the Hatay Museum is basically the reincarnation of a uh, of a, a museum that was established in the uh, in the early days of the of the uh, Hatay annexation to Turkey. So we're talking about the 19, 1938, 1939. It was at a, at a time when uh, the Great Antioch Expedition uh, 
which was basically a um, uh, an enterprise conducted by Princeton University in tandem with the Musée du Louvre. And their excavations were um, were super ambitious and incredibly, incredibly vast in terms of sort of the uh, the number of trenches they dug. Uh, but the same token, they were not successful uh, um, in in that they uh, they failed to to achieve the uh, the great goals that they had in mind: the uh, the Church of Constantine, the Palace Diocletian, uh, you name it. But what what turned up during those excavations was a, uh, a, a stunning collection of hundreds of mosaic pavements mm. that now line up the halls of museums worldwide. And in a good portion of that collection, uh, after the end of the excavations in 1939, sort of like in a state back, and sort of like it basically created the first nucleus for the, um, for the Hatay Museum. Now the uh, the Hatay Museum over time has grown to uh, to encompass a uh, a vast amount of artifacts, but the, the mosaics are of course the the centerpiece. People basically, I remember when I was in Antakya last, there were still sort of buses of visitors coming into the city to basically to to sort of like you know, look at these magnificent pavements because basically, let's face it, the the mosaics of of Antioch have no par. I mean, the, the craftsmanship is so incredibly high that that uh, I I don't exaggerate when I say that you know that that really they have no match. Whether you look at Zogma, whether you look at even like you know North Africa and so on. I mean, it's not the way of sort of like you know comparing sort of like art and it's like oranges and apples and uh, and all that. But it it, it is it is a, 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 a a matter of fact that the uh, the craftsmanship of the uh, of the mosaics of Antioch is uh, simply extraordinary, and it's a um, and it's a very local way of of adding decor to houses and public buildings uh, that that basically spans the second the, la- the end of the second century until until the beginning of the sixth century, and it's a very Antiochian way of doing things, of embellishing things, adding decor to things, uh, thus. The museum sort of it has a uh, uh, a great, uh, extraordinary collection of these mosaics. Mosaics that were also acquired over the last few years on account of of the, um, the salvage excavations conducted by the museum and the Mustafa Kemal University of Antakya under the direction of Hatice Pamir. Um, so all these all these beautiful artifacts have contributed to sort of to to strengthen in sort of the the, uh, uh, the scholarly discourse of of Antioch and the museum also however to be to be frank also includes a, uh, a a remarkable collection of artifacts that are not uh classical or post-classical and rather sort of document the uh the vibrant sort of cultural outlook of the region and during the second and the first millennium BC we don't want to Forget or neglect the fact that um, next to Antakya is Telachana and Teltainat, Teltainat especially this uh, the site of the uh, the second and first, so, I mean, and primarily from, uh, early Iron Age, um, a site that has produced a, a, a staggering amount of sculpture and uh, and artifacts and inscriptions. So sites that are pivotal in the uh in the discourse of the uh of the history of the region 
um, so it's not just mosaics and it's not just a sort of classical Antioch. We have to remember that Antioch is basically ensconced on a, uh, on a landscape that had been used for, for millennia. All it takes is just like, you know, just a, uh, a short drive to the, uh, to the plain of Antioch and you start seeing hundreds and hundreds of mounds that attest to, to life in, during the, uh, the second and first millennia BC, all independent cities and kingdoms. So the museum, in, in a way, is intended as a, uh, as a palimpsest, and they did an, an, an extraordinary job in terms of marshalling these collections and creating stories that are compelling, stories that are understandable. So kudos to, to our colleagues in, uh, in Turkey for all that. And as Catherine just said, sort of like, you know, the, the reports are such that we don't really know sort of what is happening, that we, we are led to believe that things are okay. The, uh, the military is, however, sort of protecting the site right now. I heard from 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 my friends in the city that there's been some some minor damage, but the collections overall seem to be in good shape, and that that is is great news. Perhaps it's sort of like you know, that is a, a teeny tiny bit of good news that can that can sort of like add a a, a moment of about optimism when there is really none around. Yeah, um, it's it's obviously it's our field to talk about cultural heritage, um, uh, even though we're obviously concerned for people to support the people who've who've suffered here. But let's just um, have one last word on um, the damage to the region's cultural heritage, because Catherine, you've been writing about how. Um, other places have fared. Um, obviously, the the Quakers hit um, Antakya very hard, but the tremors have spread out to other areas. You know, in the podcast, we would call them Cilicia and Melitene further mm -hmm. up, but Malatya and Adana and places. Can you briefly tell us how certain buildings have fared there? Yeah, of course. I mean, and it's important that uh, the first two earthquakes actually, Antakya was not the epicenter. The epicenter was nearer to Marash and Gaziantep. Um, so yeah, those those cities have been hit very hard as well. Uh, one of the first images of destroyed heritage um, to circulate on social media was Gaziantep Castle collapsed. Um, this had been largely rebuilt, so you know, um, you know, to what extent the extent of the loss on a historic level is you know, maybe lower than in other places, but it's still, you know, it's part of the identity of the city and parts of it were very old indeed, but, you know, hopefully it will be reconstructed. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the historic mosque in Malatia, Melitene, as the dome has collapsed, that was a very dramatic image to come out of it. Um, and yeah, but, you know, I spoke to experts from UNESCO who have said that actually no UNESCO World Heritage Sites have been damaged in Turkey. Um, Gebekli Tepe, which is a very important prehistoric site, which you know sort of predates Stonehenge by several millennia, um, and is thought to be the oldest site of human worship in the world, is apparently completely fine, <laughs> which is great news. And then in Urfa, as your listeners would be familiar with it, Edessa, um, there has been damage. You know, it's an it's an important area. It's just next to Gebekli Tepe, and it has some very important historic mosques and it has the fish pools of Abraham. This is, again, it's a very important moment in Islamic religion where Abraham was burned under Nimrod and apparently the flames turned into water and now there are these fish pools there. Well, the minaret that is over those fish pools has had damage and it's the crack and stuff has fallen away and the fish pools have sort of turned brown. So there's clearly 
you know, some some damage to the water systems beneath the city. Um, but some of the worst damage to heritage is in northern Syria, which is not talked about enough as a region that's been really badly hit by this earthquake. You know, Aleppo has been badly hit. Um, UNESCO is definitely concerned about damage to the walls and the citadel in Aleppo. And what we have to remember is that Aleppo and northern Syria have already endured years of conflict and years of damage from drone strikes and bombings and just open warfare. So, and of not least the destruction, the intentional destruction of heritage sites um, by, by ISIS and like. So yeah, that region has been badly damaged. Um, and Crack de Chevalier, the Crusader Fortress, apparently new cracks have appeared in the walls. So, I mean, as I mentioned to you, Robin, at the beginning, you know, the tremors of this earthquake came all the way down to Beirut. And some people even said it was felt in Cyprus and Cairo. So it's it's huge and the effect, the effect is, is broad across the region. And, you know, as Andrea has touched on, this region is sort of of unrivaled historic significance, not just for the beautiful mosaic art that was uh, created under the Romans, which is fantastic. You know, you've got tigers, you've got saints, you've got gods, you've got everything. But, you know, the, the history of this region goes back much further, you know, as far as Gebekli Tepe to prehistoric times. And it's it occupies this area known as the Fertile Crescent and it takes in parts of Mesopotamia. So, you know, so many human civilizations have built and left traces in this region. Um, and so, so, so much really has been damaged, but, you know, um, not everything and a lot that's really old has survived. And that that is perhaps not surprising because if it's still standing today, it's endured many earthquakes already. So, yeah. Well, let's bring it back to Antakya. And before we make um, a final pitch for um, you, the listeners, to donate to help people, um, Andrea, um, any final thoughts on Antakya, Antioch? Um, it's uh it's resilience and it's rebuilding and um the parallels from that you see you know from the work you've done with what's just happened no i i may start uh, uh my my final consideration right where sort of like you know where this whole sort of like um um discussion sort of basically started uh, in the immediate aftermath of the uh of the events of February sixth, I received a. Um, I scrambled to sort of to reach out to 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 friends and 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 uh, colleagues in in the field, and eventually got a note from my from my good friend Hakan Boyage, and he was clearly alive, but you know clearly had no no time nor any any desire to sort of like you know to to write at length. All he said was Antakya bitte. Uh, in other words, Antioch is over. Um, and we've seen that at work numerous times. And and then when thinking about the, the events of 526 and 528, this this community was so incredibly uh, down, sort of like in, in terms of like, you know, their morale, in terms of their expectations and you know so close to to this end that they decided to rename the city and and call Antioch Theopolis in the hope that sort of like you know this you know basically this cry to the to to, to the one and only God sort of like you know, will save and will spare them from from events of that of that of that magnitude in future years. Of course that was <laughs> that was not a uh, um uh solution in that sort of the uh 
the earthquakes, as we discussed previously, sort of went on and continued, and 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 still wrought havoc in the uh, in the city. But whether they changed the name of the city or not, or sort of like, or they uh, decided to to basically to uh, uh, to to passively sort of accept this sort of the. Uh, uh, in the, these environmental downturns, the truth of the matter is that this is a uh, uh, community that always invariably came back, and no matter how hard they got pounded, uh, each time they were able to sort of you know, to focus their energies, receive enough like aid and enough sort of um, uh, support, so that they could muster their forces and. And return and reinvented this community, reoriented, and uh, and we've seen that time and again. So it is it is very much well. I mean, it's not even a hope, and uh, it's my firm belief that 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 Antakya will come back because this is a, a community that is extraordinary. That 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 basically sort of like has been yeah. forced by all kinds of sort of. Environmental downturns and all kinds of sort of events that that have made really sort of this this place that unique and incredibly incredibly resilient. So I have no no doubt that that in a few years we will be able to to see Antakya sort of rise from the ashes. It'll take some time though. Absolutely, and it it needs our donations to help um, kickstart that effort. Um, so before I remind everyone where to go to find links to the various charities, Catherine. Do you have um, some final thoughts on Antakya and, and what needs to be done and who people can give to? But yes, I mean, I think it's very important to donate to local non-governmental organizations that are working in the region, but also, so, you know, we're talking about the White Helmets in Syria who are providing crucial aid to people in Northern Syria, um, Turkish Red Crescent, Syrian Red Crescent, and of course the International Red Cross and Save the Children are excellent places to send your money. Um, also, the Turkish organization Afbad is providing a lot of the on-the-ground help. But if you can specify that your donation goes to this cause, then that, that's a really good way of donating to Afbad. Um, beyond that, yeah, I, I mean, we just need to, you know, so many people have died, but there are so many that are still alive and desperately need help. And they are grieving and they are hoping homeless and they have nothing so and now really is the time where aid even if it's ten dollars I mean more is great but you know even ten dollars can go a long way at this point because so much is needed in these areas in terms of tents and food and medical supplies everything so yeah whatever can be you can spare is is really important and also just not now but in the future you know as the months go by it's also very important to that we keep an eye on how cultural heritage is being preserved and, you know, hope that the city can be rebuilt. Um, and yeah, if, I mean, so organizations like UNESCO and ICOMOS, they, they will play a crucial role in, as Andrea says, helping Antioch rise from the ashes back into the diverse, multicultural, beautiful city that it was. Um, and others likewise across the region. So yeah, uh, it's important to to, con to to consider those things in the more distant future as well. Absolutely. Um, it's really good that you visited the area, um, Catherine, because I think that really brings home, I think often when these disasters happen, 
Um, we do think in terms of giving towards the relief, and we don't think about when the immediate danger is over, the lives that have to be rebuilt. So I really do urge you listening now um, to think about that. And when you have um, spare resources to offer the people of Turkey and Syria that you consider doing so, um, visit thehistoryofbyzantium.com if you want easy, clickable links to take you um, to charities that are offering help. Um, we've talked about the White Helmets, about ABAP, Disaster Relief and Akut Search and Rescue and the International Red Cross. All the links are there um, in the UK the Disasters Emergency Committee, um, which is a group of charities have already raised £100 million, which is fantastic, but unfortunately that's just scratching the surface. So please do consider um, donating, and uh, thank you so much to Andrea and Catherine for joining me today to talk about the area past, present, and future. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 